Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principal of Charity. Today, Emil Sherman has the difficult job of trying to figure out what wisdom actually means with our wonderful guest, Krista Tippett. And of course, this is part one of the conversation. Next week, Lloyd will meet Krista on the couch for a less theoretical and more personal conversation. And if you like what you hear today and want to help us on the mission to inject curiosity and generosity into difficult conversations, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also show your support on our socials or your socials and do what you can to spread the word. Enjoy. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman, and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight, and to first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. As you know, every episode, we start with a Principle of Charity personal challenge. And today's personal challenge is drawn from the work of our guest today, Krista Tippett, and her marvelous book, Becoming Wise. Krista says, when you have very opposite views, as we have had on our show, for instance, on the morality of eating meat or voluntary assisted dying, it's not practical to assume we will get to a place where there's a lot of common ground. Sometimes the pressure to achieve common ground works against understanding the other. So the principle of charity, personal challenge this week is, next time you're in that argument with the other side, can you try to take the pressure off yourself to come to an agreement on anything and focus rather on being curious and understanding their perspective? Now, Emil, today, our episode is a little different. It's what we call a spotlight episode, where we bring on a guest who will add to our understanding of the principle of charity itself. Emil, tell us a little bit more about what is in store for us today. Thanks, Lloyd. Our aim on the podcast, as you know, is to have true expert guests, guests who are often scholars, academics, or advocates steeped in the knowledge of a particular issue. And, and even our discussions around the principle of charity about how to talk with others whose views we disagree with are often evidence-based. We draw on the latest research in psychology and other disciplines to teach us how to most effectively engage with others to seek the truth rather than win the fight. Well, today we have a guest who's less interested in knowledge per se than in mystery, less focused on truth than on meaning, and less obsessed with reason than with resonance. We have the extraordinary Krista Tippett joining us, whose on-being radio show and podcast has contributed so much to enriching the lives of its many listeners over literally decades. I read her book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living, a couple of years ago, and have wanted since then to talk with her about the values and virtues she extols, ones that are too often sidelined in our society, which prizes knowledge, efficiency, evidence, and truth, as fundamental as those aims are at the cost of a soul that craves resonance, ambiguity, wonder, and meaning. I'm also excited to see how her worldview can be applied to the principle of charity, to the way we approach, listen to, and interact with others. This is a conversation I've longed to have. We've had enough knowledge on this podcast, Lloyd. It's time for some wisdom. But before we bring Krista on, tell us a little more about her. Krista is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster and national humanities medalist. She created and hosts On Being, which has won the highest honors in broadcast and podcasting. Krista grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, attended Brown University, 
worked as a young journalist and diplomat in Cold War Berlin, and later received a Master of Divinity from Yale. She has reported and written for the New York Times, Newsweek, the BBC, and Desight. And her 2010 book, Einstein's God, and her most recent book, Becoming Wise, are New York Times bestsellers. Emil, let's bring on Krista. Well, welcome, Krista. Thank you so much for joining us. We, we know we live in polarized times where people find it hard, even undesirable, to, to really seek to understand other viewpoints. And I've been wondering if a line can be drawn back to some of the key assumptions in, in Western philosophy, which focuses on finding a singular truth to whatever questions asked. And, and this flows through the sciences, of course, but also to social sciences, which seek to use reason and data from experimentation to reveal sort of the answer to the question. Our podcast seeks the truth in a sense. And I've been thinking that it frames truth as a zero-sum game. If, if we disagree and I'm convinced I'm right, then you must by definition be wrong. Now, you've written a book about wisdom, not, not about truth or knowledge, and you've talked about wisdom as coming from an ability to hold different views at the same time. There's a sense that disagreement can be seen as an enlargement of understanding rather than a competition for who's right. A sense that healing the world is about putting the fractured shards of viewpoints back together to create a fuller whole. And I sometimes liken this to the idea that, that seeing the different facets of a diamond where each facet forms one part of a whole. So I've got two questions here. Could you talk a little about what you mean by wisdom and how it differs from knowledge? And second, the thorny question here is, what do we do with views we find abhorrent? Let's even be extreme and call them evil. Do we embrace them as part of this enlargement or do we turp them out? Well, uh, thank you for starting so easy and soft. <laughs> I'm very happy to be with you. So I realized I wrote this book about wisdom a few years ago, and I, I realized after I finished the book that I had never actually kind of stated a definition of wisdom. So I had mm. to think that through after the fact. But it seems very clear to me once I pondered mm. it. I think there's a distinction between knowledge and accomplishment and wisdom, although they may be intertwined in a life. I think that something like knowledge uh, or accomplishment is kind of a quantity that you can point at, you can define. And if any of us imagine the wisest people we've known in our lives, I think the measure of a wise life is the imprint that life has had on other lives around it. Mm. Um, so it's a complex human effect and it can be about the transmission of ideas and, and teachings, but it also lands as something embodied um, that touches the whole of a person. And and I think more than a person, it touches communities. Mm. That's not just influence? Like, how do you link wisdom to this idea that you've talked about of being able to transcend individual viewpoints and somehow hold complexity and multiplicity together? Related to this idea of how we, we reach for, for clarity and for, mm. and we actually reduce the truth in the name of getting to clarity. Reduce the truth. You know, one thing that's important to me, and I, I think this is also a quality of a wise life, is a is a reverence for questions and not just answers. The Enlightenment and modernity have a lot to answer for in terms of us searching for the answer. Mm. And yet the exercise of science, the endeavor of science, has incredible clarity that what you can discover or discern or how you might be able to move forward in any given moment is absolutely dependent on the quality of the question you're asking 
and exploring. It's kind of a lost skill. You know, the other, the other way this, this manifests in our society is that we, we love a debate. We, lo- we, know, we think that an argument is the hard, substantive way to get at a truth. Hmm. We think that to have the right argument is a way to come together. And it's not that there's not a place for that. You know, I think that some of the qualities of a wise life is a curiosity and um, a commitment to keep growing, taking in new information, to inquire, to search, and to be open to being changed and informed and growing. I absolutely believe that we are designed and we crave and and it is good and right for us to pursue truth, however we can discern it. But I think equally, vitality needs us to be open to, Mm. to, to learning more. Sometimes truth can be a reductive act rather than an expansive act. You said that This is a a quote I thought was beautiful, uh, that the crack in the middle where people on both sides absolutely refuse to see the other as evil, that's where I want to live and what I want to widen. You know, because that's a very hard thing to do. I mean, it's a beautiful provocation, but incredibly hard to live in the crack where you refuse to see the other as evil. And sometimes there are views that you do find evil, and maybe they're objectively evil depending on what moral standards you use. How do you approach and how should we approach truly horrific viewpoints in a way that still honors this sense of wisdom as an enlargement, not a reduction? I think what I want to do is make a different move. I think that even the way our brains are hardwired, I'm speaking to you, I've been at this conference this week, there are a lot of neuroscientists. Right. You know, we are actually hardwired to be attentive to what is alarming and dangerous. We, we give an inordinate amount of attention to that, you know, which shows up in all kinds of ways in our society. It shows up in, shows up in journalism. I think that, that crack in the middle, though, is a much bigger space than the space where human beings have moved beyond the pale of what it is reasonable or even possibly safe to engage. Yeah. Speaking in the United States, there's something terrible that has happened, that there's an equation of the most dangerous and abhorrent voices and opinions. There's an equation of those truly extreme places on the spectrum with everybody else who's in the large category of what those people stand for. People in this society are really frozen by that, paralyzed. Then imagine that anybody on the other side of that question or that issue or, you know, that particular identity represents that extreme. And it's, it's simply not true, right? I mean, it is a spectrum. And, and there are the extremes on both sides of any issue or any, you know, political identities we could talk about. But that crack in the middle is mm. people who may be on the other side, right? We're, it's, this is so reductive, too, to speak this way. But yeah. people who may be on that other side, who may possess that other identity, who may have voted in a certain way, um, or identify a certain way, but again, are still carrying curiosity alongside their convictions. Or good faith sometimes. Often they're actually motivated by good faith, but have come to just radically different conclusions. Yes. Most of us have some curiosity or would be able to muster some curiosity if yeah. the space were created for that to seem reasonable and interesting and safe and generative. Yeah. So that's what I'm about is trying to create those spaces. But I think 
think what I also want to say is, I think sometimes the question of how do we engage that worst exemplar means that we don't engage anyone at all. And and, and our whole societies are very hyper-reactive right now. So I actually am not that interested <laughs> in engaging the most extreme view. I'm interested in finding the people again, who are carrying some curiosity alongside their convictions and trying to to come close to and create spaces where that complexity of their humanity can show. It's enlarging the crack. So that becomes the, the place that most of us can play in, knowing that there are some extremes. I think there's also something about the shift in seeing ideas as dangerous, which makes us more scared. There's a more, there's a reactivity to bad ideas, as you say, where, where people equate an idea that feels a little bit scary with, you know, with some of the great evils of the century. Our podcast is based on the premise that you beautifully articulate that conversations for many people, including, should I say, for myself for for much of the time, has become the art of waiting to voice one's opinion. Mm. And and when they're forums for two people to really hear each other and respond, you know, they're often framed as debates, as we've talked about, with, with the aim of one side winning. And we rarely encourage in a few civic spaces where people genuinely are there to hear other viewpoints, to be humble enough to admit they're wrong, and where the aim is to get to a truth or insight that maybe neither side has yet to recognise. So I just want to ask you, what does good listening look like? And h- how would you define the sort of listening and conversations we should aspire to and what muscles do we need to strengthen in ourselves to achieve that? Well, I like that use of the word muscle because I mm-hmm. think I think there are some kind of withered muscles. Yeah, I think we think of listening as being quiet while the other person talks. But listening is really about being present. Because we're not trained to be listeners and we're trained very aggressively to be advocates, certainly mm-hmm. in my country, there's kind of internal work that that you actually have to have to do to be a good listener. I think flexing that muscle of curiosity. You know, here's the thing, even curiosity, you know, it's not enough to ask a curious sounding question, which we could all probably do. You actually have to be genuinely curious. You actually and I did, I think what so what's a litmus test for being curiosity? Are you really going into this open to being surprised? I mean, perhaps hoping <laughs> that you'll be surprised. Um, that's a kind of countercultural stance. We have everybody in a box and we know what their identities are and, and we think we know a lot about them. So flexing that curiosity muscle would be going in much more attentive to what you don't know. You've talked about hospitality. Well, yeah, hospitality is another, you know, really a social technology. It has it has infinite variety and it exists, you know, in every every human culture. And hospitality is this intelligence about creating a space in which you are bringing your best self and you're inviting others to bring their good selves. And it's not dependent on whether you know each other or, or whether you agree on things mm. uh, or, or whether you even know if you like each other. But we know how to be welcoming and, and to invite in somebody humanity first. You know, it has to do with how an invitation is extended. It has to do with how somebody is greeted. Very often has to do with food. <laughs> And drink and creature mm. comforts and lighting. There's so much that is possible with hospitality, which our life together could use. And so it's a it's a good example mm. of of something that I think we all know how to do in our personal lives, in our in our in our family lives, our lives of friendship, you know, in our communities that would behoove us to kind of 
investigate that intelligence? What are those ingredients we offer that more widely? It's wonderful because it sits somewhere in between a a space that is totally genuine, generous, and totally, you know, you're sort of expecting to and wanting to agree with each other. And also the other extreme, which is that more civic space of being polite and nice but not actually hospitable. So you, you're yeah. you're welcoming, but you're not you know you're not being vulnerable. There's a sort of etiquette and a muscle that you can strengthen without making yourself too vulnerable. Yes. I just to come back to the idea of virtues and the sort of importance of working on ourselves, strengthening our virtues like one would do at the gym with our muscles. And the sense that virtue talk can be a bit old fashioned for for many people. And the goal these days seems to be more about the authentic expression of ourself and, and of course, tolerance towards other other people expressing themselves, you know, and, and there's the idea that there's a true self in there that's waiting to be freed, whether internally from trauma or shame or externally from marginalization or oppression. Whereas the virtue model assumes, in a sense, we could go in any number of directions and a good life comes from choosing the virtues that we want to nurture and strengthen within. So what are some of the virtues you think we should be focusing on with special reference to the ones that can help us connect uh, with and understand others. And also, do you think we need to apply those virtues, whether love, humility, forgiveness, internally in the way we relate to ourselves? Is that essential or can we just be outward facing and use them to relate to others? I think I think this may be another example where we turn virtues into these abstractions and these intellectual mm. But the great virtues are, are not only both inner and outer, they, they were never meant to be carried individually, right? Um, mm. And so, like, we need each other to become the way we want to be. I realize I haven't been using this language a lot lately, but this conversation is kind of surfacing it in me again. Social art, social technologies, um, spiritual mm. technologies. The hospitality that we spoke about is 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 a virtue, and it's something. They're all they're all practices. They're not. Mm. They're practices more than their aspirations. And you know, to be more compassionate, to be more loving, to be more hospitable, um, to be kind. These are these are qualities that we strengthen by doing. And I, I think we've had this idea. I think I grew up with an idea that you know, you were born a very compassionate or loving or generous person. And and what we're learning is that you can decide that that is a good way to be present in the world. And you can, you can, you can live as if you can, you can, you can really strengthen the muscle of, of being virtuous. I also think partly where we have gone astray is in this individualism that we that we have, I, I I don't I don't think that's as strong in Australia as it is in the U.S. But I'm thinking right now a lot in this world about, for example, the virtue of 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 hope um, or of of love, and I don't just mean love the love I would practice for the people closest to me with whom I am, I'm in an intimate relationship, but but my love for this earth for for humanity, hmm. for our children, um, writ large, and as much as ever before, we really have to surround ourselves with others who can who can walk and hold and carry the, these virtues with us um, on those days when it is hmm. so much for us to ask of ourselves. They're not just individual accomplishments. There is a sense today, isn't there, that um, and particularly fueled by media and social media, that to be hopeful is somehow to be 
uh, naive. I mean, yeah. it's always been that case. Yes. And, and you know, you're, you're much cleverer if you can see the problems rather than see see the hope through to the other side. Just to jump to language, which is so core to to uh, the way you approach the world, you know, so, so much misunderstanding has come from imprecise language to espouse the virtue of precise language. You know, the thinking about the progress in philosophy, economics, psychology, sociology comes more and more from precise rational language more rational analysis that really rational language can provide. Yet I can't help feeling that much of the ways we use language today is is, is really boring and soul-destroying. Yeah. We've got the technocratic language of public life, corporate language fueled by efficiency gains, you know, the academic language, which is incredibly precise. There's the legal language. There's thinking about the medical language, the psychiatry, the DSM manual where the human mind is re- reduced to these sort of categories of mental illness. And we've gained so much from this precision, but there's a shadow as well, isn't there? They're, they've come at the expense of a language which aims at ambiguity, at poetic resonance, at richness in meaning. Right. And, and that's really where the soul finds nourishment. What sort of language do you think is best suited to elucidating the human condition and helping us to understand not just ourselves, but others as well? We need many kinds of language, but for me, poetry, you know, if I had to give one answer. <laughs> and and that's not yep. just about walking around citing verse. I mean, I think there are ways in which we can use words poetically. And 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 what does that mean? It means it means attending to beauty where possible, right? It means, I mean, there's a mm-hmm. Elizabeth Alexander, who's a poet here, talks about words that shimmer, how, you know, starting as children and and really always we're we're drawn to words that shimmer. Um, and so it means choosing words mm. carefully. It means understanding the power that our words have. We all get up in the morning and we walk through our days using words which can so easily become weapons, you know, from one instant to the next. A word, a word which can break someone's day and also with our words we can make someone's day. This is what we have to reach across the mystery of each other. You know, poetry also, a, a poetic sensibility is careful with that power. And also poetry is spare with words. It, it tries not, it tries to use only what is necessary. And, you know, all those forms that you talked about, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of wasted language. Um, and mm. there's something about that that is not life-giving. It seems like there's something in the poetic, which is about opening meaning up about, yes. um, you know, even the words you use, mystery, shimmering, These are ways to open up meaning, whereas you think of legal language. I I did a law degree at university. Legal language is about closing meaning down very deliberately. It's like the purpose is you can't keep meaning open because it it will be, you know, construed in two different ways. It just that creates confusion. You know, you, you, you seem to be siding with a language which is less reductive and more open to possibilities. And I imagine that links in with the conversation on virtues, that the more we use this language, it might shift neurologically the way we see the world. Absolutely. You know, um, the ancient rabbis say words make worlds. And it is true. That is not aspirational. Mm. It is true. And we go around Mm. 
making the world smaller and coarser than it must be or than we want to live in. You know, listening to your podcast, reading your book, there's something in the effect of those words on your soul. You feel like you're being spoken to uh, with great information. You know, I learn a lot, but also there's an opening, which I guess is that movement towards the spiritual. And I wanted to ask you about your background in theology here mm-hmm. and the lens of, of your life is infused with this religious disposition. But I'm curious as to how you define the difference between religion and science. And if religion is a, le- a leaning into the mysteries of the universe, I mean, isn't science that too in, at its best? And what, what is a religious disposition that a scientific one is not? And, and if you could bring one element from religion into secular life, what would it be? Something that Einstein said, science, science asks what is and religion asks what should be. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's simple. And maybe, maybe it was that simple before. I, don't, I think science in our time is very much on that frontier of what should be. Physics and ecology, um, everything we're learning about the natural world um, has, has resonance and implications for how we should live, mm. what vita- how vitality functions. But it, it's also not true that there, I think that the entire science religion argument is, con- is constructed and, and, and simply not true to the history of either science or religion. It's often true that they're looking at the same thing, but asking a different kind of question. What question are they? What, what's religion asking? I mean, it's interesting because I think people would think that religion is asking about God, but religion is actually also the place in the human enterprise that has pursued very searchingly the question of what it means to be human and, and how we want to live mm-hmm. and, and who, we, who we will be to each other. I think some like for I'm thinking a lot these days about um, the the capitalist questions, <laughs> as opposed mm. to the questions of moral imagination. And I would say that um, moral imagination is not merely something that emerges from religion. But again, these are these vast repositories of moral thinking mm. and deliberating. And so, you know, so that the capitalist question, and maybe you could equate this with the scientific question, but I think science is pretty wild and actually pretty spiritual <laughs> increasingly. Mm, mm. Um, but, you know, the, the question of what and how much and when, how soon, uh, versus the questions of why mm. and to what human effect and mm. how much is enough, right? Mm. Those, those are are questions of moral imagination, of of spiritual searching, m- m- rather than merely material, material. I mean, there's a history of, of course, moral philosophy, which asks a lot of those questions, which yes. have in the past, you know, linked very tightly with people of religious faith. But for much of the last century or two, it's branched off and you get a very precise language of moral philosophy which has been different to some of the more ancient language about meaning and and our place in the universe. Yes. Isn't there something to the religious sensibility, which which I guess is anchored in spirituality, in an understanding of, you know, the vastness and the reduced space of our ego, that it's not all about our mind and ourselves? Is is, is that fair to say? Or how, how how do you think about that in relation to science? Philosophy has gotten very disembodied in modernity. Right. Yes. And I think religion, um, because of all the aspects of religious experience, as opposed to just religious ideas or religious texts, right? It's it's completely woven up with communities and with 
with song and with poetry and place and ritual. So it re- retained that connection to 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 life, right? To life as it is lived and and its messiness. So listening to the incredible conversations you have on the On Being podcast, there, there is this real sense of generosity, intimacy with your guests. You bring them into the space of kindness and wonderment where you explore aspects of wisdom together, where you, you seem to implicitly look for common ground. But I've been thinking about your conversations within the lens of the principle of charity, which is about how we engage with people with different views of our own. And I get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that you generally speak with people whose worldview you fundamentally agree with. So I'm wondering, have you spent time talking with people who hold views you disagree with? And what's it like to do that sort of generous, curious, highly present listening when confronted with viewpoints you don't like? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that I would say it that way because I'm interested in people who are, who are working with complexity mm-hmm. and often who know things that I don't know, right, mm. because of the, what is the discipline they're in. I interview people who I feel I have something to learn from and that, that putting their voice out in the world more widely would be nourishing and expansive. Mm-hmm. I very rarely interview political figures um, mm-hmm. because I kind of think the context of agreeing and disagreeing often happens in that realm. And so I just don't put myself in that realm. I just don't invite it. It, it is going to get enough attention without me paying attention to it. Yeah. So it's just not a framework that's that you work yeah. to, your framework. If you're not coming to a conversation agreeing or disagreeing, you're coming with curiosity and interest. Yeah. I mean, I would say I'm coming often to people who I don't even know enough to know whether I disagree, but I, <laughs> I want them to teach me what they see and how they see. And yeah. I'm also interested, you know, before we invite anybody on the show, I'm there's a little bit of investigation to make sure that people are actually living what they're talking about, right? That this is, uh-huh. that there's a wholeness. I'm really not interested in people who have beautiful ideas and aren't living that way. Well, that's a good segue to Lloyd, who's much more interested in, in in whole beings than me. Um. <laughs> Thanks, Emil. I'll definitely t- I'll take I'll take that as a compliment. I just want to write that down now and uh, make sure I look at it every day. That was part one of our principle of charity conversation. But join us next week for part two, where Lloyd meets the guests on the couch to throw them curveballs with unfiltered, hard, and personal questions. And here's a word from our friends at the Ethics Centre. The Ethics Centre is an independent not-for-profit that for over 30 years has advocated for a more ethical society. We're a proud partner of this podcast and its spirit of curiosity and generosity. Through all our work, we bring people together, create space for difficult conversations and encourage all to live and act according to their values. Check out our website for free access to articles, podcasts and videos that unpack the complexities of everyday life at www.ethics.org.au.